The scripture reading for the morning is from Proverbs chapter 6. If you want to follow along with me in your Bible, or your electronic equivalent, or your pew Bible in front of you. Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 1. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you, have, if, you, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless, a worthless, worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Halty eyes, a lying tongue. And hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I was thinking about this passage and uh, the sermon title that came to my mind as I was walking through this was this idea of you know, how, do, how do we unravel society? And we all know this to be true, that it's a whole lot easier to unravel something than it is to build it up. And I was just thinking about sandcastles, for example. I know some of you have been to the beach. Uh, we went to the beach uh, a few weeks ago. And, you know, you want to build a sandcastle. Well, building sandcastles take time, even if they're not very good sandcastles. You know, you've got to start off with, you know, digging the moat. Because every sandcastle has to have a moat, right? You dig the moat, then you get your sandcastle-shaped bucket. Because they have those now, not just regular buckets. They have sandcastle-shaped buckets. It's supposed to save you time, supposedly. But you pack it full of dirt, moist dirt, because it needs to hold together, right? So you pack it full, you quickly flip it over, gently pull the bucket up, hopefully it doesn't fall, and then you do that a few hundred times. And you have your sandcastle. Now it's time to decorate your sandcastle. So what do you do? Well, you grab some seashells, some pieces of driftwood. You grab a couple of reeds. And of course, any type of dead sea creatures you find on the shore. You just put them in there too. And once you get it all done, you get your picture. You take your little selfie picture with it or whatever. And then what do the kids want to do? They want to destroy it. Or some other kid wants to destroy it. You know, there's always kids that want to destroy the sandcastle. And, you know, the thing is about it, you put all this work into it, you're sunburned because you've been leaning over this castle, your masterpiece, 
And then the kids just want to unleash and destroy, and they just jump on it. And in a moment, it's gone. And you're thinking, wow, that's a, it's, a whole, it's a whole lot easier to unravel it, to destroy it, to break it down than it is to, to build it back up. And so just like sandcastles, so it is with society or a community or even a church family. It's a whole lot easier to unravel it than it is to build it up. And as we come to Proverbs chapter 6, you know, Solomon is giving instruction to his son and by extension to us. And he's telling us there are some things that actually unravel society and I don't want you to do those things. <laughs> I actually want you to build up society, not tear it down. And so he gives us some warnings about certain ways that we can actually unravel society and then he gives us some suggestions on what he would have us to do. And so one of the things he tells us here that we can do to unravel society is to enable people to make bad financial decisions. If we can enable people to make bad financial decisions, then we can get, get to where we're you know, breaking down, chipping away, unraveling our society. Here's what he says in verses 1 through 3. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor and give, have given pledge for a stranger, and so he's talking about most likely two people here. A neighbor is someone that he knows that maybe has money. And a stranger comes up. This is someone he doesn't know as well, but they want money for some reason. And so what you do is you go to your neighbor, the one you know, and you basically put your credit up on the table uh, in order to, to give this stranger a loan. So it's kind of like co-signing a loan, for example. So if you, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, having given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go hasten and plead urgently for your neighbor. In other words, he's going to tell him, do whatever you can do to get out of that. One writer put it this way, he says, what is putting up security or giving your pledge for someone else? It is co-signing a loan. It's putting yourself up as collateral. It is underwriting someone else's speculative risk. It is getting into a partnership when your partner's default can bring you down. And there are several ways this can play out. You know, personally, you, you, know, you can risk the financial well-being of your family by giving access to your resources to someone who is at great risk. You know, my papa used to say, still says, he's 88 years old, he says, you know, you don't put your grocery money in the stock market. Right? Because it's risky. Same thing here. You don't put your grocery money up for collateral for someone else's loan or risk. So notice that in order to unravel society, what we need to do is actually enable people to make bad financial decisions. So if we want to unravel society, we should co-sign loans and we should try to make it easy for people to uh, spend money, have access to money, and use it in ways that are not beneficial. So if we don't want to unravel society, but rather build it up, what should we do? Well, you should be generous with what you, what you have. Well, you may say, well, Ron, didn't you just say you should not co-sign? Well, I did say that, but at the same time, you should be generous with what you have. Both in the Old and New Testament, God causes people to be generous to those who have less. 
So if we want to build a healthy community, then you, to, you need to practice and encourage generosity. And this should extend to how we personally handle our money, and this should extend to how institutions handle their money. And so we should encourage banks and other lending institutions to lend money, to provide access to financial resources in, a, in responsible ways that enable people to make good financial decisions and not poor financial decisions. Or we should encourage them not to uh, loan money in such a way that oppresses people or uh, taxes people with interest beyond reason. And so when a stranger comes to you and asks for money or asks for help, we should help them. We should be generous, but we should also be discerning in how we help them. And so Solomon is telling, telling his son, just because someone needs help financially doesn't mean you should co-sign a loan and put your well-being or credit up, up on the table for the bank or whatnot, the lending institution, because if they default, that's going to hinder you to such a degree where you're not going to be able to help many people at all, maybe not even your own family. And so don't be foolish with how you help them. Be discerning and wise. And this happens on a case-by-case basis, right? I mean, people that you meet. We should err on the side of generosity, but not be foolish with what we have. And so we want to be a generous people, but at the same time, we do not want to enable people to make bad financial choices. Another way Solomon tells us indirectly how we can unravel society, one, we should really encourage bad financial decisions. That's one way to unravel it. And then along with that, what we need to do is promote laziness. If we can, you know, demonize work and promote laziness, we can break down our community pretty quickly. Somehow, if we can say, you know, work is bad, you should do all that you can to avoid it. Um, Or if we can tell people, you know, you're entitled to certain things and you don't need to work at all, but people should just give you stuff. If we can maintain that mindset and make it popular, then we can, we can unravel society. You know, if we can encourage uh, indecisiveness, lack of follow-through, an inability to face reality, then we're on our way to breaking down our community. Listen to what he says in verses 6 through 7. He says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now let me say this, okay? Poverty is complex, okay? We need to embrace that idea that poverty is complex. There's no single reason why people are in poverty. For example, Job was in poverty. Why was Job in poverty? Because his whole estate, including his family, was destroyed by natural disaster. I mean, so there's a lot of reasons why people end up in poverty. But one reason can be laziness. And that's what Solomon's telling his son. He's saying, if you want to be in poverty, don't work. Because if you want to just keep sleeping and never you know, 
getting out there and working, then guess what? Poverty will come upon you uh, like an armed man. I want to share a few other verses with you as well. Proverbs 26.15. Just jot these down. Proverbs 26.15. This is what it says. Uh, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. So just imagine him burying his hand in the dish. You know, he's going to maybe... Maybe he's fixed some food for himself. He's prepared some food. He sat down at the table. He puts his hand in the dish. And then it says, It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Like So he's got him a bowl of food here and... He just finds it hard to even grab it and put it in his mouth. So the sluggard's good at starting something but not finishing it. They just don't have follow through. So Solomon's saying, son, follow through. Bring the food to your mouth. You know, let's, let's work. Proverbs twenty two thirteen, The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. In other words, the sluggard just makes excuses why he's not working. Why aren't you working, son? There's a lion outside. Like, really? There's a lion? There's a lion outside in the streets. Wouldn't that be interesting? If you tell your son, son, why aren't you working? Why aren't you cutting the grass? Or why aren't you doing this or that? There's a lion outside. Like, really? There's, there's a lion. In other words, just making excuses why you're not working. Some are not even valid. And so... We can, we can unravel society. We can break it down. Whether it's the church, the city, the country, we can, we can unravel these communities if we can just make people into sluggards, lazy people. Now, let's stop for a moment and say we actually don't want to do that. We want to build up the community. What should we do? Well, Solomon says, you need to take lessons from the ant. And that may be humbling, right? Man who's made in the image of God. Pinnacle of creation. And he says, son, you need to take some lessons from the ant as far as work ethic. Now what can we learn from the ant? Verse 7. Without having any chief officer or ruler. In other words, he's saying, the the ant doesn't have a boss following her around everywhere she goes. She just does what she's supposed to do. I asked my kids the other day, I said, have you ever seen an ant just hanging out? You don't. They're everywhere. And they're just going, it's like they're constantly in motion. Now, let me just pause here and say, it is possible to overwork. Okay, that's possible. And that's, we need to have a good balance between work and rest. Okay, but this proverb is specifically dealing with people that tend to lean heavily on the rest side, light on the work side. And so he's saying, look at the ant. The ant is busy about what she's supposed to be doing, and she doesn't need somebody to stay on top of her telling her to do this, do that, do this, do that. There's an inner motivation to do what God has designed her to do. And so he's saying, son, so you should have this inner motivation to do and to be what God wants you to do and to be. And to take care of responsibilities that he's calling you to take care of. So the ant doesn't have a chief officer ruler, but an inner motivation to do her job. Second thing is, um, we see the ant works hard. Look at verse 8. It says she prepares her bread in the summer. 
I went to visit my grandfather yesterday. My grandfather is 88 years old. He lives in a log cabin, Crawfordville, Georgia. He's been paralyzed for 30 years. And so I was telling Brent earlier, I went up to visit him. Anytime I visit my grandfather, he has a to-do list for me, right? He likes things just right. And so he had this long to-do list. And let me just mention, yesterday it was 101. It was a little hot. And so he kept telling me what he wanted me to do. And he said, I need to get in the shade. And so he'd, he'd, he'd pull over in the shade. And, of course, I'd be working out in the sun. And uh, I'm sweating my brains out. And he'd come back to me and say, okay, I want you to do this, that. And then he said, I need to get back in the shade. And, of course, he has a right to do that. He's 88 years old. And so I didn't mind doing it. But the point is, when you work hard in the summer, it's hard work. It's, it's, we took pictures afterwards. You know, my kids look all nice and clean. I take a picture with my grandfather. I'm just sweating. My, like my shirt's different colors. You know, it's just so, so hot. But so the point is, you know, the ant works hard to gather her bread in the summer. And listen to how one writer puts this. She says, he says, under that hot sun, she scurries about and gets the job done. You're at a 4th of July picnic. You're relaxing. But the ants are carrying off the sugar one grain at a time. And they will be back for the Fritos. I don't know if ants sweat, but if they do, they don't care. They don't complain. They don't even wait. They are not above hard work. And in fact, they seem to love it. So one, there needs to be an inner motivation to do what God's calling us to do. Second, we need to realize it may be difficult. It may be hard work. And third thing we can learn from the ant is future preparation. Look at the second part of verse 8. It says she gathers her food and harvest. And so she works today with an eye to the future. And, you know, if we want to flourish as a church and a city, then we must encourage a good work ethic. Not overwork, but not underwork. A good work ethic. And we need to see each day as a gift in our abilities as a stewardship opportunity. So if our church is to flourish, if our city is to flourish, uh, then we must put our hands to the plow and work. And so, so far... We've looked at two ways to unravel society. One is to encourage bad financial decisions. And two is to promote laziness. If we can do those two things, we're on our way. But there's a third thing that really puts the nail in the coffin and will bring a society down or any type of community down. And the third way to destroy society is to divide people. The third way to destroy society is to divide people. And here's the thing. By nature, we are professional wedge drivers. We're good at it. You know, the wedge, you know what a wedge is, don't you? The wedge is one of the six classical simple machines. And probably the most well-known wedge is the axe. Brought this out earlier. My daughter said, I didn't even know you had an axe. I said, well, I do. I do have an axe. But anyway, this is probably the most common wedge. You see, it has a sharp tip, right? Starts sharp and thin, and then it works its way thicker. Because the point of the, the wedge, and for example, if you use this axe to split wood, what you do is you, is you put it down in the wood. It catches that wood and begins to separate it. And the further you go down, the more separation there is. And that's the wedge. 
And my point is that we are professional wedge drivers. Not that we can all split wood. I learned that when I took a group of guys camping one time. And, uh, you know, they looked at the axe. They didn't know quite what to do with it. And then they started swinging it. I said, whoa, hey, let me give you a few tips here. I see you've never swung an axe. And I want to live through this camping trip. But when it comes to the kind of wedge driving I'm talking about, we're born professionals. We know how to do it. And this is how it works. I'm just going to give you a few examples of how we can do this. What we do is we just we find some difference between people. We just we look for that place where we can put the, the wedge. Okay? You got because that's what you gotta do. When you when you chop wood, you gotta look for the sweet spot, right? To make it just split wide open when you swing the axe. So when you look at the when you look at people around you, what you do is you've got to find a difference. And that's opportunity to drive the wedge. This, this difference could be just about anything. Let me just give you a few spots you can look for to drive a wedge if you need, if you need help. This could be um, gender, men and women. We could drive a wedge there. We could drive a wedge uh, between people based on education. We could drive a wedge based on uh, political views, the amount of money that you have or make, where you live, or based on the color of your skin. I mean, the, the possibilities are endless. And we're good at it. We're good at sniffing out those differences, those uniquenesses, how God has made us. And throwing that axe down right there and pushing that wedge in. And next thing you know, you have separated and divided people. And once you do that, society begins to crumble. In today's vernacular, we would call that, or one of the ways to do this, discrimination. Solomon called it sowing discord among brothers. Now let me give you a few strategies, okay? That's, first you've got to find the differences, and then let me tell you how to implement it. Look at verses 12 through 19. He says, A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that... Six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So first thing you need to do, once you find your spot that you're going to throw the axe, put the wedge in, here's what you need to do. You need to have haughty eyes. You say, Ron, what is that? It's a proud look. You know. you got to develop a look that says, I'm better than you. So work on that in the mirror. Develop a proud look. Second, verse 16, you need a lying tongue. You need to be able to uh, share partial truths. Okay? And you need to be able to lie... And maybe just share a little bit of the truth. And by doing that, you can, you can drive wedges pretty easily. It definitely sharpens the wedge. Third, you need hands that shed innocent blood. 
In other words, you need to do whatever it takes to carry out your agenda. And keep enjoying the privileges that you enjoy. And this was very evident in the, in the tragic shooting in Dallas. Where you have someone who was quick to shed innocent blood. Someone who wanted to pursue their agenda at whatever cost. Fourth, you need a heart that devises wicked plans. In other words, you need to participate at some level. You need to participate in planning the oppression or marginalization of a certain people or person. If you can do that, then you can drive that wedge pretty deep. Fifth, you need to you need your feet to run to evil. In other words, you need to be willing not only to talk the talk, but you need to walk the walk. You need to put your plans into action. You need to actively hammer the wedge so that the division becomes greater and greater and you continue to benefit more and more. That's what you need to do. Sixth, you need to corrupt the justice system. Okay? This is important. You need to corrupt the justice system. You need to tilt the justice system to your favor so that your group of friends can bring down society. In other words, Lady Justice, if you could just, you know, lift her blindfold just, a, just enough where she can see who she's judging against, that would be enough for her to tilt one way or the other and get her to side with you. So, you see, a false witness who breathes out lies. If you can corrupt the system, that can be to your benefit. Lastly, Your goal must be to sow discord among your brothers. That's the goal. That's the seventh thing the Lord hates. That's what it all leads up to. Sowing the discord, driving the wedge. And so, what you need to do is you need to stand against unity. You've got to stand against it. Promote disunity if you want society to unravel. So if you want to destroy a community, whatever community it may be, your family, the church the city, the country, if you want to destroy it, you need to tear apart this relationship by finding a difference, latching onto it, driving the wedge as deep as possible, and bringing about the separation. If you do that, society will unravel. But you know what? This is what Solomon says. God hates that. So you can do it, but God hates that hates that behavior. He says it is an abomination to him. It is totally against all that he wants from you. It is, the word is, it's detestable to him. So you can do it, but the Lord hates it. And I know we're used to hearing about what God loves. But you need to hear what God hates. And He hates this. He hates the wedge driving. He hates the sowing of discord. He hates the lying. He hates the corruption. And if dividing people is detestable to the Lord, then we also need to ask though, okay God, well what is delightful to you? What is, what is delight? What do you love? What do you delight in? Well, instead of having a proud look, haughty eyes, God loves it when we're humble. He loves it when we're humble. The humble person doesn't look down his nose at anyone, 
but he sees that everyone is made in the image of God and in equal need of God's grace. So the more you realize that, the more humble you will be. Instead of a lying tongue, God loves it when we tell the truth. Instead of shedding innocent blood, God wants us to protect life and value life because man is made in the image of God. Instead of devising wicked plans, God wants us to seek the flourishing of our communities. He wants, to dwell on what is, he wants us to dwell on what is good, right, pure, and true, and help others to do the same. Instead of having our feet run to evil, He wants our feet to run to good. Instead of corrupting the justice system, God wants us to create a justice system that shows no favoritism, but seeks the truth. And lastly, instead of dividing people, God wants His people to be unified. And He wants His people to live at peace with everyone, if possible. And I propose that the only way for us to do what God wants us to do, and at least in my own life, I think about how, how do I move toward what God delights? How, how is that possible? How do I die to self, evacuate self, and embrace Christ and do what He wants me? How do you do that? How do you do these things that delight God? Well, listen to how the Apostle Paul describes this idea in Galatians 2.20. Listen to what he says. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now the life I now live is in the flesh, in the body, right now. I live it differently than I did before. Whereas before I lived for self. Now Christ lives in me and through me. And I do that by faith. By faith I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So, if I've been crucified with Christ, in other words, I have turned away from that old life, the old self, and said, I want to become who God wants me to be through Jesus Christ. I place my faith and trust in Christ. If I have been crucified with Christ, what this passage says is that Jesus is living in and through me through the power of God's Spirit. And I think, at least this is my own experience, and I believe it's true to the Scripture, this is the only way we can pursue what God delights. This is the only way we can be a community of flourishing, of peace, uh, truth-tellers, and not wedge drivers, but people that seek reconciliation. And restoration. Because that's what Jesus is all about doing. And so we must allow Him to live in and through us by faith. If we're going to pursue what God delights. And I believe if we do this, we will become a people that is seeking to be generous and wise with our money. That we will have a a healthy balance 
between work and rest. And that we will be seeking to be humble, truth-telling, life-valuing, justice-seeking, unifying people that are seeking the good of our community. Let us pray. Father, that is our desire. And the reason that's our desire is because You are our desire. Lord, we want to be about and do and be what You delight in. We do not want to practice what You hate. And Lord, we are very aware that we do practice things that You hate. And this would be great cause to despair and be overcome with guilt or even pride not admitting that we are sinful. But Lord, when we look to the cross, we look to Christ, hope rushes in because we have forgiveness from our sin. You tell us that you will complete what you've begun in us. We, we are not a finished product yet, that you're still at work in our hearts, that you're with us, that you will not forsake us, you will not leave us. And that we can come to you at any time, any point, in prayer and in fellowship because of what your Son has done for us. Well, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would just peel open our hearts our desires, and and just help us to see them for what they are. Are they pursuing the things you delight in? Or are they pursuing and desiring those things you hate? And may we surrender them to you. Because, Because, Lord, we need you to do that. We can't do that. We need you to do that in us. And may we be your church, your people, that shows the world how a community ought to be. And that is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.